you so much that your purposes for us are good. May you be doing good amongst us now as we open your word. May we have ears that are attentive, eyes that are perceptive, hearts that are responsive, and strengthen us to respond in faith. Give us the courage to trust you as we hear your word and seek to put it into practice. And uh, we pray this for your sake. Amen. Well, leadership, it's pretty integral to life. Societies in all their expressions always have leaders. There's always someone whom others follow, those whose actions actually influence the experience and opportunities of others in that society. And I guess we can sort of always think of people who are effective leaders, but whilst you might be effective at leading people in a direction, it's not necessarily good. You might have an agenda that is good for you, but not good for the majority. Other people are given positions of leadership, but are quite ineffective at allowing people to follow them. I think because of the necessity and the impact that leadership has on people's and society's experience, leadership will always be scrutinised. And uh, within Australia, there's been sort of current scrutiny as to the effectiveness of leadership. Uh, Just the other week, the CEO of Optus resigned after there was intense scrutiny about how she responded to the uh, data um, and the, uh, the breakdown of the Optus network. Uh, There's been questions uh, increasingly about Anthony Albanese and his approach to the referendum post uh, the result there. But then we sort of acclaim when people seem to be leading in successful ways. So Australian soccer um, manager Ange Postacoglu, who's having raving success in the English Premier League, is being adored as a great leader. Uh, Leadership is hard and scrutiny of leadership is always intense. American President Thomas Jefferson once said that you get the leaders that you deserve. And I think he's namely sort of trying to capture the idea that the way that leaders are treated and valued influences the type of people who put their hand up to be a leader. And so identifying what good leadership is, it's really important for any group, any society, to then be able to recruit the right kind of people into leadership so that a vision is set for the kind of leadership that a community values, and then also a picture for leaders to be held accountable to. Who comes to mind when you think of good leaders? Who are the people that you're happy to be led by? What leaders do you respect and listen to? Alternatively, how do you respond to bad leadership? What options do we have when we're underneath destructive leadership? Leadership is integral to the health and prosperity of individuals and communities, so it's worth us pondering these questions. But it's not just questions that we ponder at this time, it's questions that people across all time ponder. And so no doubt for God's people, back in 520 BC, around the time of this passage in Zechariah, there are questions that they had too. As this new generation returns to the land from exile, as they have grown up reaping the consequences of their ancestors' bad leadership, 
a leadership that had wasted the great privilege that they had as God's people, taken for granted the blessing that it was to have God in their presence and dwell in his land. Now this new generation return and there's questions about what the future holds. Their current experience seems to be quite underwhelming. There seems to be this sense of disappointment. They have a hope, but it's a far cry from the reality of their life. The temple's being rebuilt because God has offered to return to them. God has promised that he will dwell amongst them and he's directed them to worship him in truth, to live with integrity, loving mercy and others. But despite all these promises from God, there's plenty of big questions that this generation would have. Questions about how they're internally going to function. Questions about how they're going to engage with external nations. Are they just going to repeat the mistakes of their ancestors? How is God going to actually deliver on these grand promises that he's making When will the surrounding nations oppress them again? And who is going to lead them to this future that they're being promised? So chapters 9 and 11 is pretty crazy, but it's really all about leadership. And in it, we see a picture of not just a good leader, but God designating his leader. The one who is going to lead his people into the future who will ensure that God's vision is realised, a leader who will be effective and good, but will lead in quite unexpected ways. Chapters 9 and 11 gives us a picture of a shepherd leader who cares for their flock, a leader who is worth trusting, a leader who is worth following. And so in, in sort of chapter 9, we see this Uh, movement of God repossessing the land, God's people returning and this promise of restoration. Chapter 10 gives this contrast between imitation and counterfeit leadership as opposed to genuine leadership. And chapter 11 gives us this this movement of shepherds, uh, the wailing shepherd, the worthless shepherd versus the Lord as shepherd. And so chapter 9 focuses on the repossession and inhabiting of the promised land. Now, what had begun to the point of Zechariah's generation was God's people returning to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is just a part of the promised land. It's not the entirety of it. And so God now addresses these names, which are unfamiliar places for us. But really, he's identifying all the surrounding nations. Syria, Phoenicia, and Philistia, they'd all been enemies of God's people at various times, but God is describing how he is going to deliver God's land to his people. So the three cities mentioned there in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath, they're described as the Lord being against, or more literally, the Lord being in It's a reminder here that the northern parts of the promised land, they're still a part of God's plan. God's people sort of aren't going to be etched out of what God has set apart for them. On Wednesday afternoons, I've sort of got roped into helping Ruben's team, baseball team, practice. And so we've got a designated area on the diamond where we do stuff. But last week, 
There was uh, the cricketers and they wanted to do fielding practice and there was a touch footy team and they were sort of trying to put their field on it and it was sort of this encroaching and then suddenly we're like, hang on, <laughs> this isn't our designated space. And so this guy from the baseball club says, all right, footballers, you're over there, this is our space. And this is really what verses 1 and 2 is a picture of, of God sort of saying, hey, these nations, no, 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 this is the land that I have demarcated. And so the next group that's identified is Syria. And we see there in verses 2 to 4 that they're going to be incorporated. Now, Tyre and Sidon um, had been prophesied by Ezekiel generations earlier. Uh, And again, it's affirmed that God is going to humble these nations. He's going to take possessions and destroy their power. These were intimidating and overwhelming people. It's a bit like a sort of school bully being confronted and being put in their place by a school teacher. God is protecting his people against these opposing and intimidating forces and saying, no, 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 this land that I've promised, I will deliver. A third group of people is the Philistines, uh, the cities of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron and Ashdod. And we see there that they're going to be purified and also incorporated. It's not a picture of these cities facing complete destruction, yet there is this picture of terror and dispossession. And so what we see here is that God is going to purify the remnant to include them within God's people. He's going to remove their false rituals and make them ready for his presence to dwell amongst them. And so chapter 9 verses 1 to 8 gives this picture of a complete repossession of the land that God had promised. And there's a hope that the future will be not one filled with fear and dread of when these imposing nations are going to invade next, but anticipation of freedom being able to live in the land that is theirs with a God who will protect And the hope and anticipation for this is realised through the return of the king, who we see in verses 9 and 10. One who we see described in verse 9 as being righteous and victorious. Uh, That translation there, victorious, is probably better described the one who's been saved. We see this king arriving in an unexpected way, lowly on a donkey, not arriving as some brave warrior on a stallion or in a chariot, but unexpectedly he arrives on this sort of adolescent mule. And so the arrival of the king in verses 9 and 10 is a cause for celebration. Hope and anticipation are to be expressed with joy and shouting. This king who has been long anticipated as the means by which God is going to bring victory is the one who will deliver all that's promised. And he'll deliver because he is righteous, but the one who has been saved will be the one who eventually saves. And so this king that was promised is a descendant of King David. And we read about in 2 Samuel 15 that David also had this experience of being on a donkey. It wasn't an experience where he was at the height of his reign. In fact, it was one of the real low points. His son was conspiring to overthrow him on the throne and David was forced to flee. And along the way, he's offered some assistance in the form of a donkey to use as transport. So it's this image not of triumph in expected ways, but almost defeat. 
That David's in this situation in his life in 2 Samuel 15 where he's been betrayed by his son. He's probably got real doubts about whether God's going to deliver on his plan. But it was in the midst of that moment that God turned up and used David. And so now this oracle given to Zechariah gives a picture of a king returning in verses 9 and 10 in a very unexpected way. God will triumph against his enemies and the king's arrival will save God's people and protect them. Now, an image that evokes many questions as to how this is sort of all going to play out. It's uh, further addressed, we'll look at next week in chapters 12 to 13. But as we know, for those who have uh, heard of the accounts of Jesus on a back of a donkey arriving into Jerusalem, it, this is just a foretaste of ultimately what is going to be realised centuries later through the man Jesus. Jesus is the one who would bring the kind of restoration that the rest of chapter 9 talks about from verse 11 to 17. There's this picture of how restoration is going to occur. There are four key aspects. Firstly, release. Secondly, restoration. Thirdly, victory. And fourthly, salvation. Now, the picture of release is found in verse 11. It's released from the barrenness of having waterless pits. Now, this is allusion back to Jeremiah, who sort of prophesied and condemned God's people for trading this spring of living water that they had amongst them. Think of like a bubbler with, you know, really crisp, cold, filtered water that you can access at any time. Trading that for some sort of dirty water that you sort of carry in a bucket. You know, one of our summer jobs when we go to the farm the last probably eight years has been planting grass. And a key part of that has been watering grass and grabbing buckets. And often with these plastic buckets, they get a crack in them and you fill it up and then you just try and get to the destination as quickly as possible before all the water falls out. That's what Jeremiah had said God's people had traded for. Fresh and living water from the Lord and rather these filthy vessels that were cracked, these idols that offered much, and delivered little. They're going to be freed. They're going to be released from the kind of oppression that these worthless idols bring. And they're going to be released because of the blood of God's covenant. And so we see here in verse 11 that the security that's available to God's people comes at a price. The previous generation, their infidelity to the covenant brought about exile. And now God's fidelity to the covenant is going to bring release and restoration. And it's this restoration that's picked up with these images of of double blessing, double joy to compensate for past sorrow. And it's going to come through victory. Verses 13 to 15 sort of give some images for this victory that God is going to equip them for battle and that he's going to use them. It's sort of this picture of God fighting on their behalf to deliver them. He's going to fight for them and he's going to fight through them. We see some of those words there. God is is bending, filling, rousing, appearing, sounding, marching, shielding. And the final outcome of this battle is the fourth promise, verses 16 to 17, of salvation. 
it's again, it's a, it's a hectic passage, but it's this picture of a shepherd who saves his flock. It's a promise that the king will save his own people and the result of salvation, verse 17, is a life of peace and prosperity. Chapter 9 seems to be a picture of where God is leading towards. And so how are they going to recognise the leader who's going to take them to the destination, I think is where chapter 10 flows. And so chapter 10 verses 1 to 3 begins by exposing idolatrous attitudes. It sort of unpacks the devastation that occurs when you follow an unauthorised leader. It's a vivid picture of a leader worth following from verse 4 onwards as God presents this picture of a new kind of leadership that is different to how God's people had seen in the past. A new leader who would lead towards a renewed hope. You see, for God's people, all the leaders in their heritage had resulted in a disastrous result. We see descriptions of it, of their deceitfulness, peddling false hope and shallow words, claiming to be genuine. In fact, previous leaders had been imitations. And the danger for following an imitation religious leader is as dangerous as trying to get non-genuine car parts. You know, you could sort of find something online that's a key component of your car and it's A third of the price of what the mechanic's offering. But do you really want that key component of your car to be something that could just be an imitation product that can't actually stand the pressure? And so too, this exposing in verses 1 to 3 of a previous counterfeit leadership, counterfeit religious leadership, unpacks the devastation that that can occur. And so like most of us, when we hear of fraudsters and people who have been taken advantage of, we're angered by that. We read that God is angered at these charlatans who've led his people astray. God has seen their deceit and the emptiness. And verses 1 to 3 of chapter 10 is him exposing the way that they've lived in the past. And so the warning for Zechariah's contemporaries is that of a similar danger we also face. The danger of being misled, of wandering like a sheep without a shepherd, of being in this world aimless and exposed, perhaps able to function in the short term, but not able to be sustained under poor leadership going forward. And now this image of a shepherd is something that is just strong, in the book of Zechariah and particularly these passages today. And if we think about how a shepherd maintains the well-being of a flock, well, what do they do? They ensure that the flock is watered and fed. They're aware of threats, wolves and other animals. Even farmers today, they treat their flock for sickness. They vaccinate against disease. They they shear them and, and maintain them so that the sheep don't get exposed to infection. Now, a sheep who wanders away from their shepherd or farmer carer, they probably won't realise how dangerous it is for them initially. 
that the previous care that they've had will maintain them for a period, but eventually their vulnerability will be exposed. And so the outlook of being misled by an imitation shepherd is one that is grim. Now, if we think about how sheep are cared for today, there are farmers who, they own their sheep. But although farmers are in control, the RSPCA actually has the ability to enforce standards of care. If sheep are neglected, then farmers are held to account. And it's often sort of over time that for whatever reason a farmer loses care or the ability to care for their sheep, that eventually sheep become unhealthy. And so what we see here is that God is going to punish those who don't take care of his people. And he's going to raise up someone who will care for his people as they need. And God takes the initiative from chapter 10, verse 4, with this new kind of leadership. And there's a whole range of metaphors in verse 4. And they all sort of emphasise the stability that this new leadership will provide. Firstly, we see chapter 10, verse 4, this cornerstone. It's literally a word for leader, the sort of corner piece that all the other structural pieces follow. Then the idea of a peg, it's like a tent peg that you sort of drive in the ground and give the tent strength. And then finally, this this battle bow, this powerful weapon for destruction against opponents. This new leader will provide stability. And it's going to bring about a reversal of the fortunes of God's people. There's allusions there also to the reunification of Israel and Judah, the north and the south. There's going to be a a removal of division and a picture of restoration all under the one leadership. The land that God had set apart for his people will be repopulated. His people will return and blessings will flow. The blessings that flow from being in covenant relationship with your God. And so chapter 10 continues to flow with this sense of joy that will be experienced under this new leadership. And you know that, don't you, when you've been under a good leader? You like to follow where they're taking you. And God's people who are gathered, they'll be strengthened, and enemies of God's people will be put to shame by this new leadership. Chapter 10, verse 12, I'll strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they'll live securely, declares the Lord. Now, as great as these promises are, it's easy for a new leader to talk the talk. It's, it's tempting for people to, to gravitate towards new and fancy voices rather than trusting in what's familiar. And so chapter 11 gives this dramatic picture of how this new leadership will be realised. Now, chapter 11 is particularly, I think, difficult to to get our head on because it's sort of this dramatic recreation of past events. And its purpose is to continue to show the contrast between leaders of the past and this new leader who is going to establish God's kingdom. And so we see in chapter 11 contrasts of both a wailing shepherd at the beginning and then a worthless shepherd at the end and then it's jammed in the middle with Zechariah sort of embodying the Lord as shepherd. 
Now, verses 1 to 3, this picture of a wailing shepherd, it seems to be Zechariah reliving the experiences from the past. Those leaders in the past who deceived and and come with empty promises. There's sort of this image in verse 3 of of being like a, a lion who's lost their lair. They're at large. And, you know, a lion that's on the loose is dangerous, isn't it? Seeking revenge. It's this picture of instability and fear. And so with these false shepherds having been on the prowl from chapter, four, from chapter 11, verse 4 to 14, Zechariah then sort of depicts the Lord as the good shepherd. And I think here he's sort of going back to, say, 586 BC when Jerusalem had been conquered, the temple was destroyed. He's depicting the past horrors for this current generation. He's literally, you know, re-dramatising the events of the past, this generation who'd reaped the consequences from those previous decisions. I think Zechariah is doing this because it's easy for us to forget And it's common for us to repeat mistakes from the past. And so this role play, um, Zechariah gives three symbolic acts. In uh, verses 4 to 9, there's sort of this idea in verse 8 of the Lord removing three shepherds. And I think that's sort of the three key elements for leadership in God's people, the prophet, the priest, and the king. When God handed those authorities over to the enemies as God's people were exiled. Uh, The second image is this idea of breaking the two staves. And I think it's, it's reminiscing that the covenant was broken. The staff that was called union seems to signify the family bond that God had with his people. And the second staff called favor, you know, grace, showed something of the disconnection that God's people had from God's gracious rule when they were exiled. It's a little bit like a child who decides to disown themselves from their parents, either verbally or attitudinally or like physically removing themselves. And then their parents say, okay, you're, you're of legal age now. If that's what you want, you don't want a relationship here, then go on your way. The blessings that flowed from being God's people were severed as God's people rejected his rule. And so then the official termination to this relationship is captured in the third image in verses 12 to 13 of the casting of the silver, the 30 pieces. Now, 30 pieces is sort of what an owner would have to pay if their slave was accidentally killed. So it's a little bit like a divorce settlement. The people pay God to go away, but they pay him as if he's no more valuable than a household slave. And so sort of having sort of pictured this image of the Lord as shepherd and him giving God's people what they wanted, Zechariah switches roles again in verses 15 to 17 to play the role of a worthless shepherd. It's this picture of a bad shepherd who foolishly repeats past mistakes, who's morally corrupt and indifferent to God's claims, who doesn't care, seek, heal or feed. It's this description of a worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. It even got that image of the shepherd devouring his sheep. And and so this worthless shepherd alludes to the distorted leadership of God's people in the past. And it's a warning about leadership into the future. 
And now, this passage is extremely confusing to get our heads around. And I'm sure that for God's people in Zechariah's days, it sounded just as cryptic as it does to us. And perhaps the reason that God brought this word in this manner through Zechariah is is that the future wasn't going to be simple and clear-cut. There was real hope in this true leader, but things weren't going to change overnight. Things would only change when the right leader came along. And now it's often when we read these bits of scripture that we sort of verbally or subconsciously ask the question, why are we even bothering? Why are we spending time in this bits of the Bible? Maybe we're asking, why is bits like this even in the Bible at all? But chapters 9 and 11 of Zechariah are quoted or alluded to more than 10 times in the New Testament. So if you're a little bit lost as to what's all happening here, this is the memo. Verses 9 to 11 of Zechariah is all about prediction of Jesus' arrival. The need for his arrival and the nature of his leadership. You see how much more depth there is to to the words of Jesus coming, saying, I am the good shepherd. As he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble and lowly, who comes bringing peace and confirming the covenant by the spilling of his own blood. And then this language of establishing a new covenant, his body, his blood. Don't you see the significance of the chief priest paying Judas the 30 silver coins for him to hand over Jesus? And then Jesus, the good shepherd, being rejected by everyone and then following worthless and deceptive shepherds. But rather than these cunning shepherds who devour their sheep, Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the one who died so that others could be rescued. So maybe this gives us a fuller picture of Jesus. What are we going to do with it? Well, I think we need to recognise that God triumphs. And he triumphs in unexpected ways. And I think, most importantly, we need to recognise that Jesus is the leader worth following. Like Zechariah's day, God's promises might seem a little bit distant. Our present reality of faithfully trying to hold on to God might feel us a little bit underwhelmed. It might raise some doubts as to whether God is actually going to realise the promises that are available. But in Jesus we have a hope that something that will be established will last. The good shepherd will establish the good pasture for his sheep. And so we're invited to hope in his goodness and worth, even in the midst of disappointment. And just as complex and convoluted is the the wailing and the worthless shepherds versus the good shepherd, so too is our experience of church life as we seek to follow our good shepherd. 
If you stick around following Jesus long enough, you'll realise that his church and his leaders can be just as complex as this passage that we've read today. John Dixon's recent book about the history of the church talks about bullies and saints. You know, the, the popular podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. These stories of God's people, people trying to follow Jesus, where there's both deep love and care and hurt and pain, all sort of happening at the same time. See, leaders are necessary for God's people, but there's only one leader. Never refer to a church by the identity of their pastor. Never say, oh, this is Danny's church or our church. Every gathering of people who are following Jesus is his church. And so to be a part of the church is to be led by Jesus. And Jesus is inviting all of us to follow him. And God's purpose is for there to be leaders within the congregation who are leaders under him. And so as we're seeking to submit to leaders or raise up leaders, we're to look for people who are looking to Jesus to lead their life. We want to be following leaders who themselves are following Jesus. Leaders who are humble enough to continue to demonstrate that they themselves are sheep. Leaders who listen to the voice of Jesus more than the voice of this world. Jesus who came lowly and humble, who triumphed in most unexpected ways. Who, who being saved himself is offering salvation to us all. So we need to recognise that Jesus is the leader worth following. And then we actually have to be led by him. It's easier said than done, isn't it? To have our life led by Jesus. It's certainly going to mean that we surrender some of our aspirations for what we think our life would look like. It will certainly mean at various times that we surrender various desires that we are feeling to his will. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Friends, one of the key ways that Jesus has invited those who follow him to remember that he is the chief shepherd is the institution of this Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that together now to share this sort of embodied experience that reminds us that Jesus is the one who feeds his sheep. He is the one who cares and protects and we are invited to listen and be led by him in all aspects of our life. So...